Those were some uh, perfect songs for us to sing uh, in preparation for the text that we're going to be looking at this morning as we go back to our study of the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. If you were here uh, last week, we waded our way back into um, the, uh, this, this great letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome and uh, just kind of, um, like I said, just uh, waded into it a little bit, uh, looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. But let's um, read together uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Again, a very, uh, some very familiar verses here uh, for most of us, but uh, nevertheless, uh, a great opportunity to be reminded of the truth of God's word. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, To everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart That is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, again, we just want to say thank you for giving us your word, preserving it for us, and then also providing us your spirit to illuminate us to understand what you meant by what you wrote through the pen of Paul here. And while this may seem basic to some of us, um, maybe even redundant um, to uh, many of us, I pray that as we consider the simplicity of salvation today, that our hearts would be once again overwhelmed with your goodness and your grace, being an infinite God who is far beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet you made getting right with you so accessible, so easily understood and easily undertaken. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who may have arrived today who have been living in ignorance, not knowing that they don't have to work their way to heaven, that today you would open up their eyes to see the simplicity of the gospel and that you would grant them genuine repentance and saving faith. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, every religion in the world, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, Taoism, Shintoism, Sikhism, Mormonism, of course, Islam, can all be lumped together into one group because they all essentially teach the same thing. When you strip away all the beliefs and all the morals and practices and traditions and ceremonies and holy places from all these religions, they all boil down to what man has to do to appease God so that he will accept them and grant them eternal life in some way, shape, or form. 
What sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world, in fact, I'm not sure Christianity should even be categorized as a religion, but nonetheless, what sets it apart from all the other religions in the world is that it teaches there is nothing man can do to appease God and gain his acceptance on their own. God, on the other hand, appeased his own wrath against man's sin by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and then raised him from the grave to prove that he accepted his sacrifice in the place of all those who would place their faith in what Jesus did for them in order to have their sins forgiven and have eternal life in heaven. And so that's really what is so unique about Christianity. It's really not a religion. It's a relationship, a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, the zealous devotion of those involved in other religions or cults throughout the world, as misguided as they may be, puts many of us as Christians to shame. I mean, consider the Catholics, for example, who are very reverent when it comes to attending mass and going to confession and reciting the rosary. The Muslims will fast an entire month, um, once a year, the month of Ramadan. They'll literally starve themselves out of devotion to Allah. I'm sure some of you have seen the the extreme lengths that Hindus go to to appease the 33 million plus gods that they have to keep happy. And so Hindus will often pierce their bodies with hooks and uh, put spears through their cheeks and walk on hot coals. Mormons, uh, we've all bumped into Mormon missionaries, I'm sure, Uh, Every Mormon young person devotes two years of their lives to serve as missionaries for the Mormon faith. And while all these things are well-intentioned, none of these things, or anything else for that matter, is able to make a person right with God. In fact, depending on these kinds of religious observances or sacrificial acts to earn God's favor is bound to fail because all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's eyes. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that. Because we are innately and completely corrupted by sin, none of us are good enough nor will we ever be able to do enough good to atone for our sins so that we are acceptable to God. And besides, all these strange, albeit sincere things that mankind has devised to get right with God and to stay right with God have only served to complicate the matter of salvation. They make salvation harder than God ever intended it to be. I'm here to tell you this morning that salvation is simple. So simple that anybody can be saved. but that doesn't mean everyone will be saved. The only people who will be rescued from sin, death, and hell are those who acknowledge that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. And so they cast themselves on the grace and the mercy of God and rely solely on what Christ did to save them. In other words, salvation is not hard, nor is it hidden. You don't have to pursue some spiritual pilgrimage to find it or perform some kind of public or private penance to earn it. All the searching and striving is unnecessary since salvation is easily and equally accessible to everyone regardless of who you are or what you may have done. You simply have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's essentially the the point that Paul was making in this passage. And if you remember, the context of this passage is Israel's failure to believe in the Lord Jesus as the only way to be made right with God. And 
I mentioned this last week, but it helps to ignore uh, the chapter break here. That big 10, you've got staring at you uh, in your Bible there. It's, it's just better to overlook that because uh, Paul was continuing here to explain why the Jews rejected Christ, which he introduced at the end of chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And so he introduced this concept, and really he just continues on here in chapter 10. In fact, uh, chapter 9, verse 30, uh, all the way to chapter 10, verse 21, it all goes together. And, and, it, and it helps also to remember that chapters 9, 10, and 11 all go together as well. And again, I've mentioned this in the last several times. We looked at this section and this transition into chapter 9, uh, really this uh, parentheses, if you will. Some call it in the book of Romans. It's really no parentheses. It's a, it's a much-needed clarification about how Jews and Gentiles fit into God's overall plan of salvation because Paul had been making references uh, in the first eight chapters uh, in, of this letter to Jews and Gentiles. Um, in fact, the theme verse, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. And he made comments like this uh, along the way, um, particularly um, verse uh, chapter three, verse nine, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And so Paul's, Paul knew at this point in the letter, the main question in people's minds who were reading this would be, uh, okay, Paul, so what's up with Israel? What's up with the Jews? If the gospel that you've been describing is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, then why did the majority of the Jews reject the gospel and continue to reject Christ to this day? Well, why were the churches in Rome and why are the churches in our day made up mostly of Gentile converts rather than Jewish converts? Weren't the Jews God's chosen people? And so in chapter 9, Paul focused on Israel's past and explained how God didn't choose every Jew to be saved. And he talks about the doctrine of election. Here in chapter 10, Paul focused on Israel's present and explained why most Jews stumble over Jesus. The, the theme of chapter 10 is really just rejection. And then in chapter 11, this is where the hope comes in, Paul focused on Israel's future and explained how Jew, the Jews will one day embrace Jesus as Lord. And so you have the doctrine of election in chapter 9, uh, you have rejection in chapter 10, and then you have restoration in chapter 11. So again, starting back in chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through the end of chapter 10, Paul made it clear that Israel was responsible or accountable for her rejection of the gospel. In other words, God is not at fault for not choosing all the Jews to be saved, but it is, it is the Jews who are at fault for not believing that a person is saved by simply placing their faith in Christ's work rather than relying on their own good works. And again, he says, what shall we say then? In verse 30, a statement that Paul would use whenever he was about to summarize uh, or start a new section. Um, and so he really is getting back to the original subject, which he spent the first eight chapters explaining how a person is justified or declared righteous or made right with God. And he talks about those, the Gentiles, who didn't pursue righteousness, and yet they attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by what? Are you asleep? By faith. Verse 30, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by what? Works. So here's the faith and works things, right, that we're very familiar with. 
there's only two kinds of righteousness. There's God's righteousness and there's self-righteousness. There's only two ways to seek salvation. You can do it your way or you can do it God's way. It's either you save yourself or try to save yourself or you recognize, you know what, I can't save myself. God has to do it. And ironically, we saw last week, those who try to save themselves end up in hell, and those who trust God to save them end up in heaven. And Paul described Christ and God's provision of righteousness on the basis of faith in Christ as a stumbling stone. Notice verse 32, it says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And Paul continues that thought here as he moves into chapter 10 and goes on to explain why the Jews stumbled over Christ. And he really gives the reasons why Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah and refused to accept the simple message of the gospel that a person is made right with God by relying on what Jesus did rather than relying on what they do. I've just broken up this text into two sections Verses one through four, you could just maybe put the word ignorance over those verses. And then verses five through 13, you could just put the word acceptance. Ignorance and acceptance. And really the the message of verses one through four is that no one can be saved by fervor alone or zeal alone. And then the point that follows in verses five through 13 is that anyone can be saved by faith alone. So no one can be saved by fervor alone. Anybody can be saved by faith alone. So let's look at these two concepts this morning. Really, the concept of salvation by works versus salvation by faith. Notice how Paul began this chapter by expressing a similar sentiment that he had conveyed at the beginning of chapter nine. Remember chapter nine, verse one, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was so burdened for his fellow Jews that he was willing to forfeit his own salvation if that were possible so his fellow Jews would be saved. He was willing to be cursed so they could be spared. And he says pretty much the same thing here, or at least something similar, in chapter 10, verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul was aware that he was considered a traitor to Judaism by his fellow Jews. That he had um, sold out to Christianity when he was converted to Christ and they viewed him as an enemy. And so Paul didn't want anyone to read this letter and think that he was bashing the Jews or had some ax to grind against the Jews. It was the exact opposite. He had a massive burden for them and was motivated to pray for their salvation. He was deeply concerned for their souls and and nothing would have brought him greater delight than for God to open up their blind eyes and grant them repentance and faith in Christ. By the way, I love this expression in verse one coming on the heels of everything that Paul just got done teaching in chapter nine about the sovereignty of God and salvation. But see, Paul's commitment to the doctrine of election didn't result in fatalism or what is referred to as hyper-Calvinism where, oh, if God's already decided everything, 
well, it's irrelevant if I pray. It's irrelevant if I share the gospel. It's what's gonna, what God's ordained is going to happen no matter what I do or don't do. Well, notice Paul still felt the responsibility to passionately pray for the lost and faithfully share the gospel with the lost in hopes that they would get saved. So if you're sitting here saying, well, hey, if all that is true and God's sovereign in salvation and the doctrine of election this and predestination that, why pray, why share? I mean, if you really believe in the doctrine of election, people are going to get saved whether we pray for them or not, whether we share the gospel with them or not. Again, let me remind you that God has not only ordained who will be saved, but he's also ordained the means by which they'll be saved. And the means is verse 14. We're right there in the same chapter, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And so we have the joyous privilege of being those who Paul calls uh, the ones with beautiful feet, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things, that people need to hear the word of Christ. They need to hear the gospel, and we are Christ's ambassadors. We are the mouthpieces that God uses to get the word out. I'll never forget reading uh, how someone once asked Spurgeon that if he believed so strongly that the only, the only the elect will be saved, then why did he preach to everyone and not just the elect? And Spurgeon quit back. He said, well, hey, if you'll pull up everybody's shirt and show me the E on their back, then I'll, then I'll preach to them. But I don't know who's elect and who's not, so I'm just gonna preach to everybody. And just, just, just know that the Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I think just as we start here, I think we, we, we need to ask ourselves, do we share Paul's desire for the salvation of lost people? Do you feel the same burden that he had for your unsaved family members, your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and classmates and teammates and as Paul had for his fellow Jews. I think the true test of how passionate we are for the salvation of unbelievers is how fervently we pray for them and how frequently we present the gospel to them. And so the question is, who are you fervently praying for? Who are those unbelievers that you are fervently praying for and as frequently as possible trying to share the good news of salvation with? So Paul said, man, my heart's broken for these guys. I pray for them all the time that they would get saved. And notice what he says in verse two, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He wasn't condemning the Jews for being godless or irreligious. In fact, it was the exact opposite. To their credit, they were extremely zealous in their pursuit of God, but they were totally ignorant about who Christ is and how God sent him to provide the righteousness that we lack in order to be saved. How many of you have ever, ever been to uh, Israel and, and been to the, 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 uh, the Temple Mount area and, and seen the Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall? And that's probably the iconic image. When you think of Israel, you think of the, 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 the Orthodox Jews dressed in black standing there uh, before the wall, you know, doing something like this. And, and they stand there for hours praying or they, they have a little desk that they pull back away from the wall and they're reading the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, it doesn't get any more devout. It doesn't get any more zealous than Judaism, even in our day. 
And no one understood the plight of the Jews better than Paul since he was in the same exact place prior to his conversion. I mean, there, was, there has never been a more zealous Jew on earth than the apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee, which was the most zealous sect in Judaism. He faithfully observed all the rituals and traditions and ceremonies prescribed by the law, and he fiercely opposed anyone or anything that posed a threat to Judaism. Just, just listen to how he described himself to others. And this is when he was giving his defense before the Jews who had seized him in the temple. They thought he was bringing Gentiles in to defile the temple. And uh, he had to remind them, Acts chapter 22, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, the city of Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, who was just, he was kind of like Yoda, okay? He was the legendary Jedi, if you will, of Judaism, Gamaliel, I was trained under him, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. In other words, hey, I get your zeal. Been there, done that. In chapter 26, in his defense before Agrippa, Paul said this in verse four, so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Verse nine, so then I thought to myself that I had to, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And of course, it was on one of those pursuits to a foreign city, the foreign city of Damascus, that he was gloriously converted. And again, listen to how he described himself to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And then, of course, Philippians is where Paul kind of pulled out his spiritual or religious business card. And he says in Chapter 3, verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But in hindsight, he recognized that all of this was done in ignorance. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul knew what he was talking about when he said, hey, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He understood that zeal, that no matter how sincere that zeal is, it's not enough to save anyone. That zeal must be accompanied by truth. How many times have you heard someone say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere, right? That if, 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 we, if we just do the best we can, surely God will accept us. Well, there was no question in Paul's mind that the Jews were sincere, but they were sincerely mistaken when it comes to salvation or how a person is made right with God and, and gets to heaven. Notice what he goes on to say. For not knowing, what, what, did they, what were they ignorant about? Well, what, what did they not know? Well, they didn't know about God's righteousness, verse three, and seeking to establish their own, 
They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the fact that God is not looking for us to be righteous, but he imputes or credits his righteousness to those who place their faith in the work of Christ rather than their own works. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God knows we lack the righteousness and we'll never have enough righteousness to, to, to go to heaven. And so he had to provide it for us. And so instead of simply receiving Christ's righteousness on the basis of faith, the Jews tried achieving their own righteousness by keeping the law. In other words, they sought to earn God's favor by their own good works and refused to submit to God's plan of declaring righteous those who simply believe in his son. Notice he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We have already been learning here in this letter that Christ fulfilled the law through his teaching. Matthew 5 talks about that. He fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly. John 8, 46 talks about how he, he had no sin. And then he fulfilled the law by bearing its curse. We see that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. But I don't think that's what Paul was referring to here when he said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think what he was saying here is that when a person places their faith in Christ alone for salvation, it ends their futile quest to establish their own self-righteousness by keeping the law. Again, remember what Paul said back in Romans 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. God never intended Israel to be saved through perfect obedience to the law. Obeying the law wasn't the means that God designed to get right with him or to stay right with him. Instead, he wanted their inability to keep the law or to live up to the law to lead them to the only one who did. And of course, that's Jesus. Why? So they could be justified or declared righteous based on their faith in him. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to who? To Christ so that we may be justified by faith. He never wanted us to be justified by the law, by keeping the law. He wanted us to be justified by faith. And so Christ was simply, or excuse me, the law was simply there as a tutor to lead us to Christ. So, what was Paul saying in verses one through four? Rather than attempting to save ourselves by establishing our own righteousness, Salvation comes by simply accepting the righteousness that God provides through believing in Christ. So that's ignorance and how no one can be saved by fervor alone. Let's look secondly at acceptance, how anybody can be saved by faith alone. Notice verse five, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. So here again, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Again, I said this before, Romans 9, 10, and 11 has one of the most concentrated, is one of the most concentrated sections of Old Testament references. Why? Because Paul was talking about the Jews. Talking about Israel. So it makes sense that he was drawing from the Old Testament and backing up everything he was saying uh, with truth from the Old Testament. And so here he quoted from uh, Leviticus 18.5 where Moses was talking about a person's life being blessed by keeping the law. The problem is, in order for you to if you, in other words, if you set out to live your life 
according to the law, as if that was the, the be-all, be end-all to your relationship with God, you would have to keep the entire law your entire life, which we learned last week is impossible. It's impossible. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in, what? One point, he has become guilty of all. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So salvation through the law, based on the law, is impossible for anyone, everyone, I should say. But what Paul's point is here is that salvation is is accessible to anyone. Works-based religions make salvation impossible for everybody because you can never live up to it all. You can never do it all. You never keep it all. Where Paul was saying, hey, listen, salvation is accessible. Salvation is not impossible. It is accessible to anyone. It doesn't require you to go on some spiritual journey where you have to scale the heights of heaven and plumb the depths of the earth in search of Christ. Notice he goes on uh, to quote from Deuteronomy 30. And this is a loose quotation for Moses' farewell address to the nation of Israel before he passed on to be with the Lord. He said, but the righteous based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, you don't have to climb to heaven and bring Christ down to earth. Not only is that impossible, but it's unnecessary because he's already come down from heaven to earth in his incarnation. But we're celebrating the season, right? The birth of Christ. Conversely, we don't have to go to the grave to bring Christ up. Again, not only is that impossible, but it's also unnecessary. Why? Because Christ already came up from the grave at his resurrection. By the way, these two doctrines concerning Christ, his incarnation and his resurrection were and still are the hardest doctrines for Jewish people to accept. That Jesus was God in human flesh and that he rose from the dead and that he's alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And yet a person must accept these two foundational doctrines in order to be saved. In fact, that's what he's going to get to in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, i.e. Jehovah God of the Old Testament, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection, you'll be saved. But notice verse 8 first. But what, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He's still quoting from Deuteronomy there. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Which, by the way, the word of faith, that, that expression has been hijacked by the word of faith movement in our generation. And it's the, it's the name it and claim it, right? That if you, uh, um, if you, if you speak it, right, Uh, If you claim it, God will grant it to you, the word of faith. Um, And the reason why you don't have stuff, the reason why you're you're poor, the reason why you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. You just got to claim these things. So they completely hijack this phrase and rip it out of this context. This is the word of faith is the gospel. That's what the word of faith is. It's the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, which is easily communicated and easily comprehended. It's it's easily explained and easily embraced. In other words, God's way of salvation is not complicated or difficult to understand, nor is it hard to undertake. 
You don't need to starve yourself. You don't need to whip yourself or pierce yourself or do a lot of benevolent acts or make large charitable donations. All you need to do is believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done to save you from your sin. And that's what he gets to. The climax here really is verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. In order to be saved, in order to be made right with God, in order to go to heaven when you die, however you want to say this, you must acknowledge or agree with the fact that that baby in Bethlehem was the God of the universe in human form who came to earth to live and die in our place. And we need to, secondly, believe that God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he was indeed God's son and that God was satisfied with the sacrifice that he made on behalf of all those who would believe in him. Not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he also exalted him to his right hand in heaven. Philippians chapter two, verse nine says it this way, for this reason also, what reason? Well, because Jesus was willing to come from heaven to lay aside uh, his glory uh, in heaven as the second member of the Trinity. He took on human flesh, humbled himself, became a man, and even was willing to die on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will what? Confess. Agree with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, just to throw this out there, the demons confess that Jesus is Lord. They believe that God raised him from the dead. They know. But there's a, there's a difference between confessing Jesus is Lord and confessing Jesus, what? As Lord. In other words, we know who you are, Jesus, but we're just not gonna submit to you. We're just not gonna bow to you. I think it's interesting that the fact that the demons acknowledge Christ is Lord, and they believe that God raised him from the dead, tells us that the kind of saving faith that Paul was talking about here is more than just some mental agreement with some biblical facts about Jesus. And I'm good, I'm going off of uh, what James said in James chapter two, James chapter two, verse 19, where he was talking about the nature of true saving faith. He said, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. And that's what happened. Whenever whenever Jesus showed up to, to cast demons out of somebody, what did the demons say? They acknowledged him as the Lord. They were convinced of who he was. There was no question in their mind who Jesus was. And they would actually bow down in some sense, but they refused to repent of their sinful rebellion against him and submit to him. And so I think we have to understand this, this, this word, these words here for confess and believe are loaded words. 
Saving faith involves admitting that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell and believing that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. But I think it also involves committing your life to follow and obey him as your sovereign master and Lord. In John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Interesting that John there, and some would say even this was the words of Jesus, uses the terms believe and obey synonymously. In other words, you believe something to the point that you obey it. You may remember that when Paul introduced his subject of this letter, which is the gospel, in Romans chapter one, verse five, he was talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. He uses that expression, the obedience of faith. He doesn't just say faith. He says the obedience of faith. And then he bookends the letter because at the very end, Romans 16, verse 26, that him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has made known to all nations leading to obedience of faith. In other words, your confession of who you say Christ is and your belief in him will evidence itself by the way you live your life. It'll it'll come out in your life. In fact, Paul goes on to say that an inward conviction about who Christ is and what he's done results in an outward confession that you're a Christian and everyone will know it. Notice what he says there in verse 10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Kind of flips the order there. goes from confession and belief to belief and confession. So again, for with the heart a person believes. Believing with the heart means, means more than just accepting some facts about Jesus in your head. It, it means personally applying who Jesus is and what he has done to your life. In other words, it's instead of a, a mental agreement there also, it also involves a volitional commitment to these things. So again, an inward conviction about who Christ is and what he's done results in an outward confession that you're a Christian. In other words, that you're, you're not ashamed to, to confess Jesus as your Lord, to tell people you're a Christian, that you believe in Jesus. And he says in verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or ashamed. Again, he he quoted a a portion of Isaiah 28, 16, which he already referenced back in chapter nine, verse 33, the last verse of verse, uh, last section of verse 33. What he's saying is, listen, if you trust Christ alone for your salvation, you will never be ashamed. You will never be disappointed. But, If you go on trusting in your own works to earn God's acceptance, you're in for a rude awakening when you stand before God someday. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter seven. People that thought they were good to go to heaven. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the people saying, hey, Jesus is Lord. But maybe he wasn't, they weren't confessing him as Lord. Right? He is Lord, but he's not my Lord. It wasn't personal. 
This is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? What are they, what are they reciting? Here, here's my list, my to-do list. These are all the good things I did. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Interesting. A couple of things here. You practice lawlessness. In other words, based on, they may have said that Jesus is Lord and maybe said they were a Christian and thought they were a Christian, but based on their lifestyle, right, they were practicing sin. They were practicing life, lawlessness. They said they were a Christian, but they weren't living like a Christian. And this is in the context of Jesus saying, by their fruits, you will know them. You'll know who's saved and who's not saved by the fruit in their life. But he said, I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. See, this Christianity stuff we're talking about is not a religion. It is a relationship. And the question is not, do you know Jesus? The question is, did Jesus know you? Back in Romans 10, notice he goes on. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction. So we're into this whoever thing, right? Now he's talking about everybody. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction between Jews and Greek or Gentile for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And in the same way, he said back in chapter three that everyone who sins will be condemned. And that's what he said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, here he's saying everyone who believes will be saved. So everyone who sins will be condemned. But the other side of the coin is everyone who believes will be saved. So there's no distinction between Jew, Greek, or you fill in the blank, male, female, black, white, regardless of your race, regardless of your color of your skin, we all need salvation and salvation is available to us all and we are all saved in the same way by faith not by works. And he just kind of seals the deal with verse 13. He says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting here from Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter two, verse 32. And again, what is he doing? He's emphasizing again that salvation is available to all and accessible by all. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, salvation is open to everyone. It's not exclusive or limited to the Jews or any other group of people. And yet at the same time, while anyone can be saved, they can only be saved by calling out exclusively to Jesus. In other words, whoever will call on the name of not Allah, not Ganesh, one of the Indian gods, Hindu gods, or Joseph Smith, or you fill in the blank. No, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Jesus said, I am the, what? Way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. First Timothy chapter two, First Timothy chapter two, verse five. Familiar verse here. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, the 
Christ Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were arrested for healing some guy and um, they had to give a defense of, well, what, what, what happened? How'd you do this? Acts chapter 4, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that's why Paul said in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. I don't know everybody here. I know most of you. But some of you may have arrived here today, come here today, ignorant And that's not a slam on you by any means. It's just simply acknowledging the fact that that, that you didn't know that you can't earn salvation by your own efforts. You you didn't know that. You were just kind of doing the best you could and hoping for the best. Hoping your good works will outweigh your bad works and God grades on a curve and well, guess what? You're no longer ignorant. You know now, based on the authority of God's word, that no matter how hard you try, you will never be good enough or righteous enough for God to let you into heaven. The question is, will you humbly accept God's free gift of salvation by acknowledging that all of your good works are nothing more than filthy rags in God's eyes? And will you place your faith in the work of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you failed to live and died the death that you deserved to die to earn for you that righteousness that you lack? Paul, again, is a great example of what this looks like. After listing all the things that he had worked so hard for all of his life to earn God's favor, he said, whatever things were gained to me, Philippians chapter three, verse seven, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or doing good things, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that salvation is so simple. That while you are an incomprehensible God, you made getting right with you accessible and available to all of us. We don't have to be super smart. We don't have to be super sincere. Um... We don't have to be super sacrificial. Lord, Christ has done everything that needs to be done. And we simply need to accept it as we would any other gift. We just take it and say thank you. Lord, I pray that you would 
enable those who are here who have yet to receive that free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, that you would enable them to receive that by faith today. And that they will be able to leave here rejoicing and being relieved of trying to earn their way to heaven. But that they would understand what Jesus meant when he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Because I came to do the work for you. The work you could never do in yourself. Lord, help us to live out our faith this week. And Lord, help us to get excited about the privilege that you've given us to help others who are working way harder than you ever intended them to, to, to be right with you, that we can just tell them about how they have to do is believe in Jesus and commit their life to follow him. Give us opportunities to share the good news of the gospel this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.